in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, it is hard to imagine the character of Aslan as anything but a lion. In his series, Aslan represents the Lord Jesus Christ and no other created creature could better represent Jesus Christ than a lion. C.S. Lewis, he was not the first to think of Jesus as a lion. In Revelation 5, Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. We've recently studied the book of Hosea, and Hosea talked about God as a lion. And then today, we come to the book of Amos, and guess what? He will also describe God as a mighty lion. Roger Crooks, he is a writer today, he's a pastor today, he lives in Ireland, and he has some great things to say about this book of Amos that we're going to be studying this morning. He points out that through the book of Amos, we see God as a lion in three ways. He is a lion who roars. In other words, God is a lion who speaks to us. He gives us his word. He is also a lion who pounces. God is a lion who judges. He punishes. He disciplines. But he is also a lion who heals. He redeems. He restores. He saves. God willing, we'll see all of this in our study today. If you're visiting with us, we are right in the middle of a sermon series on the last 12 books of the Old Testament. In the 5th century, Augustine started calling them the minor prophets, and that's not because they are minor in significant, they're just minor in length. They are shorter books, which is why a typical sermon in this series is going to cover an entire book. These 12 books were written over a period of about 300 years, between 750 B.C. and 4. 50 BC, and they were written by 12 prophets. If you don't know what a prophet was, a prophet was a mouthpiece of God. So these were men or women who received direct revelation from God to then pass on to his people. So Amos, he was one of those prophets, and he wrote. For Israel, and now we have it today to read a very important book. So, without getting any further, will you please bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we set out to read this book of Amos, to understand what he had to say, to understand how it applies to us, will you help us? Will you use your Holy Spirit to help us now? As we look to understand and apply your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We'll open your Bibles to the book of Amos. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you can find it on page 716. Let's talk first about the author and the audience the writer and those whom the writer was writing to, Amos and Israel. And to understand who Amos was, there are two texts in this book that give us some information. The first one is at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds, 
So Amos was a shepherd of Tekoa. Tekoa was a small town 12 miles south of Jerusalem in Judah, which he saw concerning Israel. Okay, stop. And I don't know if you caught that, but Amos was from Judah, but God sent him to Israel. So at this point in history, God's kingdom has been divided. There is God's kingdom that is in the south, that is Judah, where Amos is from. And then there is God's kingdom in the north, that is Israel, where God sends Amos to. When? In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Which means that Amos was writing somewhere between 760 and 750 B.C. Now there's one other place we learn about Amos, and it is in chapter 7. So flip to chapter 7 with me, and while you do... Let me give you some context. At the time Amos is writing, Israel is very stable and they are very prosperous. They are physically and materially, they are doing really well. In fact, they were experiencing prosperity to a level that they hadn't seen since the days of Solomon. So in that sense, life was really good. They had winter houses and summer houses, according to 3.15. Their homes were made of stone, which was a big deal, according to chapter 5, verse 11. They had beautiful vineyards, and they had lots of wine. But they were not cognizant of or grieved by their sin. So physically doing well, spiritually not doing well. Let me read to you verse 6 of chapter 6. They drank wine in bowls. That's a picture of their wealth. They drank wine in bowls and anointed themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So here's the context. Here is the problem in Israel. They misinterpreted their prosperity as a sign of God's favor. They misinterpreted their prosperity as a sign of God's favor. So, horizontally, things were going well. Horizontally, there was peace. All of their enemies were in check. There was not a lot of internal strife. Economically, things were going great. So there was horizontal peace. And for them, horizontal peace, that equaled vertical peace. Everything looks good here. Everything feels good here. There's not a lot of struggle here. So that must mean that we have God's favor. But the problem is that they misinterpreted their prosperity as a sign of God's favor. And so what did God do about that? He sent Amos. He sent Amos to leave his home to go to Israel and preach some hard words. God was not pleased with them. They needed to hear that though materially they were living in the best of times, spiritually it was the worst of times. And so in chapter 7, I hope you're there, verses 10 through 17. We've got a confrontation between Amos the prophet and Amaziah the priest. And we learn some more about Amos here. He, he was an outsider, we know that. 
He was also not a professional prophet. Yes, that was a thing. He was not trained to be a prophet. He was not the son of a prophet. So he was not a pro. And we'll see, he was bold. Most of these prophets were. But he was bold. And you're going to see it here. Verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, that's a little town just across the border into Israel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile, away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Okay. Amaziah doesn't like what Amos is preaching. Now, never mind whether or not what Amos is saying is true or not. Amaziah, he just doesn't like it. So he tattles to the king. And then he goes to Amos and says, Go, flee away to the land of Judah. In other words, go back where you came from. You're not wanted here. We don't need you here. Go back home. And then here is how Amos responded. And I think you'll see the boldness. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. So he was also a farmer. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. So think about what you're about to hear Amos preach, and the fact that Amaziah the priest just told him, shut up and go back home. You're just negative, negative, negative. You're just telling us how bad we are and how God's upset with us and he's going to come judge us. We like more positive thinking. So go home. And this is a guy with a lot of power who's got the king behind him. So how would you respond? How would you be tempted to respond? How does Amos respond? Well, here's what he says. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. And your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. So he doesn't take Amaziah's advice. He doesn't listen. I'm here. God has sent me here with a job to do. And I'm doing it. So that's Amos. And that is Israel. Now let's get to his actual prophecy. There are three parts to his prophecy. If you're taking notes, those parts are messages, visions, and promises. That's what you've got here. Messages, visions, and then promises. Let's get started with Amos's messages which you find in 1-2 all the way through chapter 6. Eight messages are here. Eight messages of judgment. And they're all structured the same way. This is how you can find each of the messages. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. All of these messages begin exactly the same way. Here's the first message, and it begins this way. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of, in this case, Damascus, and for four 
I will not revoke the punishment because. They all begin that way. In this case, because Damascus had threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So if you look, it's the same structure in 1.6 to Gaza, in 1.9 to Tyre, in 1.11 to Edom, 1.13 the Ammonites, and in 2.1 to Moab. And those are the first six of eight messages of judgment. And all of those messages, those were to surrounding nations. So if you're Israel, you don't have a problem with that. These are messages of judgment to your enemies, to the surrounding nations. No problem with that. Well, then the next message is in chapter 2, verse 4, and that's a message of judgment for Judah. Judah is Amos' home tribe. That's where he's from. And he's got a message of judgment going back home. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because... They have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. And you can almost hear Israel in the background saying, Amen. Amen. By this point, Amos' audience in the north they were probably feeling pretty good about themselves. Amos had just pronounced judgment on all their surrounding enemies, including their kinsmen to the south, which already confirmed what they were thinking. God is good with us. This prosperity, this horizontal peace is obviously a sign that we are at peace with God, that God is favoring us. It's going well for us and not for them. I like this prophet Amos. He sees it the way we see it. He knows what's wrong with all these dirty nations, including our brothers down south. But at least so far, Amos doesn't have anything negative to say about Israel. Well, that changes in chapter 2. Israel was not exempt from God's judgment. Actually, Amos has more words for Israel than anyone else. The judgments on the nations and Judah were two to three verses each. Israel's about to get 80. Chapter 2, verse 6, all the way through chapter 6, verse 14. We're not going to read all those verses, but I can tell you this. While we can be sure the people of Israel were guilty of many sins, there are two in particular that Amos brings up. The two sins that Amos brings up, we could call nominal sins religion, and social injustice. Now remember, all these minor prophets, they're bringing word of God's judgment. They're bringing word of God's sovereignty and God's holiness, and they're calling people to repentance, and then they're bringing a message of God's love and giving them hope. And Amos is no different. What's different about each book is the sins with which the people were struggling. That's one thing that's different. And so here it is nominal religion and social injustice. Well, what is nominal religion? Or we might call it nominal Christianity. That is... Someone who is a Christian 
in name only. There's not really a relationship with Christ. It's someone who says, sure, I'm a Christian. If they're given religious boxes to check, they look for the Christian box, they check it, they call themselves a Christian, but then there's really no relationship with Jesus. There's no love for Him. There's no devotion to Him. There may be, and there often is, some outward conformity. But inwardly, there is no faith and there is no devotion to Christ. Roger Crooks calls it counterfeit religion. Gary Yates calls it vain religious ritualism. Gordon Fee calls it syncretistic religion. And James Boyce called it religious formalism. We might know it today as nominal Christianity. I'm a Christian because my mom and dad were Christians. I'm a Christian because I subscribe to the same values that Christians subscribe to. I'm a Christian because I'm not this and I'm not that and I'm not this and so I must be this. But there's no real relationship with Christ. So let me show you this indictment in the text. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. This is describing outward conformity. God says you love to do this, Israel. You make your sacrifice every morning. You tithe every three days. You're always in church. You have the right words. This is what you love to do. You publish them. You want others to see what you do. You want others to know what you do. It's outward conformity. But inwardly, their hearts were far from God. So God took no pleasure in what they were doing. If their hearts were right, then God would take pleasure in it. But as it stood, he took no pleasure in their services, their feasts, or their sacrifices. 5, 21 through 24. I hate, God said, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So your sacrifices mean nothing to me. Your outward obedience to me, God said, means nothing to me. Your songs, they would gather together and sing songs like we sang this morning. But God was saying, those of you whose heart is far from me, you don't really love me, you're not really devoted to me, I don't even like the sound of your songs. It sounds horrible to me. This is religious formalism. This is nominal Christianity. It's merely outward. It's not inward. I asked a few of my boys this question this week, and I would ask all of you the same thing this morning. What is it about your life that shows your love for God? 
your love for God. Your heart for God. You know, we cannot be a Christian without love for God. We've heard His good news. We believe the gospel. We've placed our faith in Him and we love Him. So what is it about your life that shows your love for God? How are you noticeably different from someone who's not a Christian? And our answers to these sorts of questions, they better be more than outward conformity is the point. It better be more than outward conformity. It better be more than I go to worship. And you can find me there on Sunday morning. And I give money to my church. And I do these good deeds. And I do these good works. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Only if it's flowing from love for God. So that was the first sin that Israel was guilty of. It was a nominal religion. Second was social injustice. There was a a wealthy upper class in Israel and they were marginalizing and they were mistreating the poor around them. There were several groups in this day and if you were a member of one of these groups, you would be absolutely destitute if someone else didn't take care of you. Those were widows, those were orphans, those were the Levites, and those were the foreigners. If you were in one of those groups, you had no land, you had no money, you had no means to provide for yourself, and you would be destitute if no one provided for you. So there was an upper class in Israel that was neglecting these people. Not only that, but actually cheating them and taking advantage of them. Chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. I'll read one more in chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? When will the Sabbath be over that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor, slaves, that we may buy the poor for silver and buy the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. This was social injustice. And think about it. What are these two sins, nominal religion Social injustice. What are these two sins but disobeying the great commandment that Jesus gave us in Mark chapter 12? Let me read to you verses 28 and following. One of the scribes came to Jesus and he heard him disputing with his disciples and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. True religion inside and out, is loving God. Likewise, social justice, concern for the poor and the needy and the helpless among us is loving our 
neighbor. Never mind whether or not you hear the term social justice or social injustice and it's a buzzword for you and you have all kinds of things that come to mind. I understand that. But biblically speaking, social justice is in the heart of a Christian. There is a deep concern for those who are poor, for those who are needy, and for those who are helpless. And in our actions toward them, this is love for our neighbor. And in true religion, not just the outside, but the inside, love for God. So those are the messages of Amos. And through them we hear God, we hear the lion, we hear him roar. He speaks to his people. But next we come to the second part of Amos's book. Here are the visions of Amos. And we find them in chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 10. So Amos was given words to preach, and then he's given these visions. Specifically, he has given visions of God's impending judgment. Four of them. Chapter 7, verse 1, and then verse 4, and then verse 7, and then chapter 8, verse 1. Each of them begins with the phrase, this is what the Lord God showed me. So these are visions of imminent judgment, and they are terrifying. The first one is in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, and in the vision, Amos is shown a plumb line, and the plumb line is held up against the wall of Israel. We use a level, we smack a level on the side of a wall to see if the wall is level or not. And you got a little bubble, and you get the bubble in the middle, and that's how you know. Well, they'd have maybe a rock tied to the end of a string. And you just hold the top of the string, and that's going to be straight up and straight down. So the vision for Amos is that plumb line is being held up against the wall of Israel, and the wall is not level. It's leaning, which means that the roof above Israel is about to come crashing in on them. Next in chapter 8, He's given a vision of a summer fruit basket. That sounds like a great vision. It represented the prosperity that Israel was enjoying, but it soon was going to be taken from them. Let me read you this terrifying judgment in chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. And and hear how angry God was with his people for neglecting the widows and the orphans and the foreigners around them. Listen, think of it this way. Sometimes we're tempted when we read the judgments of God, we're we're tempted to, in those judgments, to hear that God somehow doesn't care or isn't loving. But you've got to go back and remember why God is upset and angry in the first place. He is angry because he cares. He is angry because he loves. And so here are his people who should be loving those among them, and they are not. And so God will send this judgment. Chapter 9, verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals under the thresholds until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. You could read the rest of those verses if you'd like this week. These are these visions of terrifying judgments of God. As terrifying as what we just read is, if you look with me at chapter 8, it is... The worst judgment 
In chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, God was going to take His word from His people. And friends, this is as bad as it gets. God was going to take His word from His people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. I asked myself this question this week. Could this be happening to us? I don't know the answer. Could God be taking His word from us? There are so many people in the world today. I'm reminded of this every week. There are so many people in the world today who have no access to God's Word. I mean, there are Christians who are learning languages and translating the Bible into languages and then risking their lives to smuggle God's Word into so many places in the world today because they have no access to God's Word. Now, we have access to God's Word. You understand no one in the history of the world has had access to God's Word the way you and I do. When we want to read God's Word, we just go read it. We have it. But, over the last several hundred years, we have preached it, and we have taught it, and we have defended it less and less and less. D.A. Carson, I read, I read this quote from him once, and it has, it has stuck with me. He was explaining that there have been other peoples and there have been other cultures who, like us, had God's Word. And then there came a day where they did not have God's Word. And so he, he described how that happens. And he said it goes like this. One generation believes God's Word and defends it. The next generation assumes God's Word and takes it for granted. And then the next generation rejects God's truth. And I've thought so many times, where, where are we? Where are we as a nation? Where are we as a church? Where, where am I as a husband and father? Where is the Myers family? Like, you don't want men, you don't want to be that dad in the middle. You want to be the dad who believes the truth and defends the truth and is teaching the truth to your kids. Because if you're the dad that just assumes the truth and you just take the truth for granted, then maybe your kids are going to be the generation that reject God's truth. I don't know what God is doing with us. But Israel was on the verge of having God's word taken from them. So these are the visions of God's judgments, his punishments, his discipline. This is the lion that was going to pounce. And now third, the final section of Amos' book. There are great promises made in chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. 
Have you noticed that Hosea, if you've been with us during this series, have you noticed that Hosea and Joel and now Amos, they all end with hope? There's something to that. Unlike Hosea and Joel, there's very little comfort in Amos' book. I mean, you're dying by the time you get to the end of his book. You're hurting. You are hearing about these judgments, and you're feeling convicted, and you're questioning whether or not there's any hope for you, and then finally, the lion who heals. The last words of this book, and I'll read them to you. This is chapter 11 through 15, and I'll just tell you that this is pointing to Jesus so a lot of this is in our rearview mirror today, but this was still in the future for Israel. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. It is Jesus Christ who has initiated this, who has inaugurated this kingdom, and this for you as a Christian is in your future. This paradise, this heaven, this day that is like the Garden of Eden again. And so Amos ends this book with hope. And so we've seen through his words that the lion... God, he roars, he, he pounces. He also is the one who heals. So in conclusion, what are we to do with Amos? We live in similar times. When we read about Israel and heard some of the qualities of those people didn't you think to yourself that sounds a lot like us today I mean we live in some ways the best of times I mean we live in the best of times this is a very prosperous day and place to be alive but we also live in the worst of times When we look at moral decline around us, when we consider things like nominal Christianity, we would have to say that in some ways we do live in the best of times, but we also live in the worst of times. So what would a modern day Amos preach to us? Well, we should hear the words of God. We should pay attention to how he spoke to Israel and we should ask ourselves some important questions. Do we love God? Do we love God? Are our hearts near him or are our hearts far from him? Are we merely religious? I mean, this is a good thing. We're all here. 
And you all look great today. Happy. You've got your Bibles. You're singing songs. We read the congregational prayer and I hear all of your voices. But is that a reflection of your heart? I hope it is. Or are you, this is one way the New Testament describes it, or are you just cleaning the outside of the cup? Are you cleaning the outside of the cup? Talking like Christians talk, doing what Christians do, looking like a Christian, acting the part, but the inside of the cup is dirty. The inside of the cup is filthy. You're neglecting your own heart. You're neglecting your own soul. There's not true love for God. Do you love your neighbor? Do you truly love your neighbor? Do you have a heart for those who are suffering? Do you have a heart for those who are hurting? Do you have a heart that as far as it can and depend on you, you want to help those who cannot help themselves? These are the kinds of questions that we cannot read Amos without asking ourselves. And now the last question I want to answer is, what if we don't? You know, what if the answers to those questions are not good? What if I don't love God? What if I, what if I don't love others? What if I, I really listen and I really pay attention to this question? And I really ask myself, and I'm terrified by the answer I get back. I don't think I love God. I don't think I love others. Well, there's hope. There is hope. Again, this is how Amos ends his letter, but it's also... Very quietly and very subtly, it's how he began his letter. Actually, this book begins with hope and it ends with hope. Because if you don't love God this morning, if you, if you don't trust God, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you may trust Jesus today. You may put your faith in Him today. This could be the moment where everything changes for you. Because God is able to save you. And so if you look at the very beginning, or you can just listen, in chapter 1, verse 2, Amos wrote, And he said, The Lord roars, and we talked about that, The Lord roars from Zion. Oh, there it is. So where is the Lord? And where does He speak to us? Where does this lion roar to us from? And Amos says, from Zion. Well, Mount Zion is the hill in Jerusalem where God said to build His temple and to make sacrifices to Him. You remember that? On Mount Zion, that's where you are to build the temple, He told His people. And in that temple, that's where you are to make these sacrifices. These sacrifices that would alert His people to their need for a sacrifice, which pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so the lion who speaks, this lion who roars, is roaring from Zion. The place of the sacrifices 
the place of the sacrifice where Jesus came, lived, suffered, and then died, rose from the dead in the place of sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to God. And so in Revelation 5.5, we're not surprised when Jesus Christ is called the Lion of Judah. We must trust and love this lion. This is Amos' word for Israel and what it is to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we turn our attention now to the sacrificial death of your son. God, may you be glorified as we remember and proclaim his sacrifice in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're at the point in our service where we'll take communion together. If you're visiting with us, you're welcome to take communion. If you are a Christian, if you are a baptized believer who has placed your faith in Christ, you are committed to him and his people, whether it is this church or another local church that preaches the same gospel you heard today. Let me read you from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's remember together and proclaim together the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Would you take first the bread? which is a symbol of the body of Christ. Let's take and eat this together. And this cup, which is a symbol of the blood of Christ, let's take and drink this together. Will you please stand again with me?